Hello, everyone. Welcome to Alligator Preserves. I am your host, Laurel McCarg, and today I am honored to share a visit with Dr. Robert G. Williscroft, who is a retired submarine officer, a deep sea and saturation diver, a scientist, and author of so many books and articles. And what a life! So please stick around. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Robert makes, should I call you Robert, or should I call you doctor, or should I call you Dr. Robert, or should I call you, what should I call you? Robert is just fine. <laughs> Wonderful. Robert, how was Mile High Con? Mile High Con was both good and not so good. Do tell. Uh, the good part is uh, people got together. There were some new faces. Um, it, the venue we had been to once before, it, but people were getting used to the venue at the Marriott. But uh, one of my close friends, uh, Arthur Mayer, also a hard science fiction author, didn't get on the list. And he'd been there for the last seven years. Oh, my. Well, I hope they found him. Yeah, I think they will after after I made some noise. And everybody (sighs) had to wear masks. And that was kind of unnecessary. And unnecessary, in my opinion. Right. Still, this is still an issue. Um, I just had an appointment yesterday at the hospital and two weeks ago we were wearing masks and yesterday we weren't. So yeah, it's a crazy, crazy mixed up world and we're having to uh, be very flexible, aren't we? Yep. I just visited a doctor yesterday and nobody there wore masks. But did you have to? Nope. Oh, well, that's good. I think that's good. We all just need to toughen up, don't we? And and you know something about toughening up. Well, I got to... (laughs) I don't believe that. You know, I thought I've done some pretty amazing things in my life, but you, 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 you take the cake. Would you tell our listeners what saturation diving is? I'm going to make the assumption that your listeners have some idea about what scuba diving is. Most people know that if you dive for too long, too deep, you and then come to the surface too quickly, you get the bends. Uh, what most people don't know is that you, if you stayed down at some depth long enough, uh, your body has absorbed all of the nitrogen or inert gas, if you're really deep, that it can absorb. At that point, it is saturated. If you were to go, for instance, to um, say 100 feet and stay there for about an hour and a half, You could then stay for three days if you had enough air, and you wouldn't have any more decompression than you would if you had just stayed there for an hour and a half, because that's all your body will take up. Now, typically, saturation diving is done when you have to dive very deep and where the people doing the diving are being paid on an economic scale that is staggering, so that If a group of divers were to dive down to, say, 600 feet on an oil rig and then come up after an hour's worth of work, they'd have to be paid for nearly 10 hours of diving at a rate of about six or seven hundred dollars an hour, which makes it incredibly expensive. 
But if you press them down in a chamber, saturate them at that depth, you can drop them off with a with a um, with a bell uh, at the capsule, and they can stay down there for ten hours working. And then maybe they've got two or three days of work. You bring them back up under pressure. They sleep in the chamber, have something to eat, go back down again. And when it's all over, they decompress just one time. And that makes it economically way more feasible. Wow. And I believe you've had some input into these saturation tables. Yes. Because you're a scientist. I was involved with the whole development of it and personally have been down to a thousand feet. Uh, breathing uh, a special mixture of helium, a little bit of argon, and a tiny little bit of oxygen, just enough to give us the 21% partial pressure that we have to live. (sighs) All right. So that's saturation diving, which is fascinating, and it it, it plays into your stories. Have you ever wrestled with an octopus? Yes, I have. Have you really? Are you kidding? it It wasn't really wrestling. This was up in Puget Sound. We had been going out uh, doing some uh, ad- some uh, advanced diver training. I was one of the instructors, and we discovered this octopus up against a cliff underwater at about 25, 30 feet. And when we measured its tentacles, it was 20 feet from tip to tip. It was one big. We think it was a she, but we couldn't tell for sure. We got inked, uh, but we were just careful and, and cautious. And we came back the next day. We had to see this octopus a little bit more closely. And this time we brought some Kentucky Fried Chicken. It turned out the octopus loved Kentucky Fried Chicken. I ended up making friends. I could swim right up to the mall, right up to the to the beak and give it the, the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And it no longer inked me and was very friendly and knew who I was. It was really cool. Oh, That's not exactly wrestling, but it's way more fun. Right. Well, I've done a lot of research on those fabulous creatures because in, you know, in water white, we have octopuses, but the males in the mating situation with an octopus really get the short end of the stick, so to speak, don't they? Yeah. (laughs) So I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that was a female or a male. I'm pretty sure it was a female. All right. And when an octopus inks, is it dangerous to you at, at all? Not really. The purpose of the ink is to hide the octopus, not to, not to give camouflage for attack. All right. And did she or he uh, blend in with the with Very his or her so. background? Yeah. In fact, if you didn't know she was there, you'd hardly see her. That that is absolutely fascinating. So you've seen some things underwater. Yep. I understand you might have met Jacques Cousteau. Who was I did a yes, hero of uh, mine. Huh. Jacques Cousteau is an interesting fellow. He's more interesting on screen, perhaps, than he is in person. Uh, okay, but was but uh, the uh, Calypso was coming into Norfolk, and I was the harbor master at the time uh, at the uh, NOAA facility in Norfolk, and he was coming in, and I was on the radio with the uh, with, with the ship's captain, and I. I wanted to set things up so that he would come in and more starboard side too, so that leaving the pier would be very easy for him. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, I'm sorry. I can't do that. I got to come in port side too. Well, you don't argue with the ship's captain. So I said, sure. You know, and we changed things a little bit so that when he came in, he docked, he knew what he was doing. He's a professional. 
And while he was coming in, Jacques Cousteau showed up and he and I sat there and we chatted for 15, 20 minutes, uh, standing off, looking at the ship coming in and his his baby, his bride. He talked with the captain for a little bit. Uh, we shook hands and he left. And then I was invited to board. And the captain looked out to make sure that Jacques Cousteau wasn't there anymore. And then he said, now I can tell you why I couldn't come in the starboard side too. He took me over and showed me the starboard side of the ship. It was not painted. Just the port side was painted. And he didn't want to embarrass his boss by coming in with an unpainted side. They didn't have enough money to paint the starboard side. Oh, man. And so they only painted one side for the video for the filming of his well, just, show just for the for in general for the ship coming in because there was there was news cameras and so forth there he also took me to his dive locker and it was standard dive gear the stuff that i and my guys used all the time and i said well where's this cool stuff that you guys have on the videos he says oh that's over here and he, and he took me into another room and here are these fiberglass fairings and uh, special, very floppy fins that look great in the water when they're flipping up and down, but don't do anything useful. And he said, we just use these when we're on camera. And then I said, let me see your dive manual. He did not have one on board. And so I pulled out a NOAA dive manual and I autographed it and gave it to him. So the dive manual with my signature was on the Calypso. <laughs> that is fascinating well i read i met you oh a few years ago i think i think i probably met you at the last mile high con i went to but i didn't really know who you were and then we were table neighbors at the georgetown christmas fair and that's it wasn't I, that fun and breakfast mates yes and breakfast mates and so i convinced you to give me your your um trilogy well i, I was only looking for one book and i read slingshot which has a forward by the originator of the launch loop now in a nutshell and to a lay person would you describe this transportation invention that as i understand sure. has not yet been developed it has not yet been developed uh, in the real world mathematically and engineering wise it has been it's just not economical yet to build it, and I'll explain that in a moment. Um, the way we get to space now is with rockets, and if we're really smart, we use Musk's rockets rather than NASA's rockets because they get us there faster and cheaper. Uh, but anyway, um, there is a much less expensive and far less environmentally challenging way to get into space. Uh, briefly, if you... If, if you stand out in the yard with a garden hose with water flowing out of it, and then you start pushing the hose away from you, uh, the, the water will form an arc. And if the water's flowing fast enough, the hose will follow the arc and will be suspended in the air with the water until finally there's too much weight and it collapses. You got it. Well, if you take and replace the water with an iron ribbon, and you put it in a sheath and you run you you drive it at both ends with linear drivers and you take it up so that it's traveling uh, at about 7.4 kilometers per second orbital speed it will elevate itself this is just plain physics it will elevate itself up to about between 80 and 100 kilometers depending on the other other factors and if you because it, ha it has a tendency 
to tilt one way or the other. You put in some guy wires to keep it stable. Uh, and if you were to build something like this so that one, the, the eastern end is at uh, Jarvis Island and the western end is at Baker Island in the South Pacific, right on the equator, uh, they're about 2,000 kilometers apart. And you can drop a cable from the suspended launch loop down to the islands. And if you do it correctly, you can run elevators up those cables, which is what you see there in the picture. And then when the elevator, when the uh, capsule, the launch capsule gets up to the station, it can then magnetically attach itself to this extremely rapidly moving uh, ribbon. Um, and then uh, it, it will it will attach with a slip attachment where it isn't entirely locked, but it, it, it slides through the magnetic field as it accelerates until finally it, it reaches uh, about uh, 3G, at which place it's clamped solid. And then at the appropriate moment, it lets go and it heads off in a tangent to wherever you want it to go. Uh, that's called a space launch loop. If you do it right, and Keith Lofstrom, who invented it, uh, in this forward describes how it how it can work. You can get the price down to about what it costs to move freight by railroad across the country. Virtually nothing compared to what it costs now. And his contention is, and uh, that uh, as soon as we are launching enough material into space, so that the cost of building this thing, which is extremely expensive, uh, and the amortization of that cost is less than what it costs to take Musk's rockets up. Uh, Musk is going to build it, and we're going to have this kind of a system going forward. Well, that was going to be my next question, is will it be done in our lifetime, and will Musk do it, or um, did he recently invest in the wrong venture? Well, uh, he jumped into Twitter, didn't he? Uh, <laughs> Musk is an interesting guy. Um, I am certain i am convinced i don't know him personally but i'm convinced that he's fully aware of the space launch loop and probably has got people working on the theoretical aspects of it and when the time comes he will push hard and make it happen will will you see it i think so i'm only 80 years old so i think so um, amazing all right you're only 80 years old what's the most challenging physical thing you've ever survived and it how did <laughs> is your lovely well, wife you, around? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, she would. She would probably agree with me. Uh, the most challenging thing. Well, um, that's surprisingly uh, okay. Uh, I spent a year at the Geographic South Pole conducting research, and while I was down there, while we were in isolation, and there were seventeen of us, and we were isolated for nine months. And this was before the internet, so uh, we could communicate by uh, ham radio, and that was it. And uh, we ended up with a fire in our fuel supply, a raging, enormous fire. And if we hadn't got it out, I wouldn't be sitting here talking with you today. Uh, but uh, with the heroic actions of a couple of guys and uh, a little bit of forethought, because we had drilled just a year earlier with just uh, just a week earlier with a similar situation, just having a drill. And so we kind of knew what to do. You know, when you're in that situation, you never 
never really know what to do. You just kind of play it by ear as you step into it and do your best and use your skill. And yeah, that was probably the most challenging. How did it change you? What did it do to you? Anything? Anything long-term? Not long-term. Uh, it probably gave me a little bit more confidence in my ability to survive tough situations. So a fire at in a very, very cold place. Nothing about where you were located was that big of a deal? <laughs> well, we were we were at at the South Pole at ten thousand feet, and at the time of the fire, the temperature was minus eighty. It had been below minus one hundred for most of the winter. What do you do to adapt to that? I mean, I lived in Leadville for twelve years at ten thousand feet, but wasn't ever that cold. Uh, you stay indoors as much as possible. I had to go outside every day because my lab was a hundred meters uh, upwind. Everything is north from the station, but upwind from the extension of the fuel arch. We had the kind of Quonset, uh, metal Quonset uh, arches, and we had the fuel bladders in one of those. And I would, I would walk through the arch and exit the door at the north end and then walk 100 yards to my lab. So I did that every day. Mm. And, and you're a wimp. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, back to, back to Slingshot. Did you know Amargo? Probably. I have tried to incorporate. Uh, you met my wife, Jill. Uh, I have tried to incorporate her personality into all of my all of my books, one way or the other. And if you know her, and you will find a woman in the book somewhere who reflects things you know about Jill. Uh, Jill's an engineer. Uh, she is a lot like Margot. She's tall, um, capable. Uh, so yeah, I guess I know Margot. Well, I'm not going to give any spoilers here in this book, but her discovery was awesome. It's so, cool, isn't it? It's very, uh, a friend of very mine cool. who is the uh, he, he was a professor of English at Norfolk State University. John Rosenman, Professor John Rosenman, read the book, and he wrote back and said, the ending of Slingshot is the most awesome ending I have ever read in a book. That's It's wonderful when we hear stuff like that about our work, isn't it? Yeah, I, he was probably just, just buttering me up. But yeah. <laughs> That's okay. We, uh, we authors need a little buttering up now and then, don't we? Because we work really, really hard, and we put our work out there, and then it's no longer ours. It's up to everybody else and their opinions, what they think about it. And it, it takes it takes courage to do that. The last book that I published, um, Operation Arctic Sting. No, the last one was um, The Ork Federation, the second book in the Ork Chronicles. And it, it hit Amazon and the next day had a one-star rating. No review, just a one-star rating. Talk, so, talk, you know, talk so, about <laughs> so you know no one read it. And yeah, yeah. He was just he was just a jerk. Yeah, that happens. It, it's it makes you humble. Well, it does after you get over the, the anger, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> what do they know? What do they know? Well, would you like to read a passage from whichever of your many books you have to give our listeners a feel for your writing? Yes, I, I would. And uh, you had asked me earlier, and I did quite a bit of thinking 
and rather, although I have more science fiction books than I do books from the Mac McDowell Missions series, okay. the uh, most recently published book in that series, Operation Arctic Sting, which is about my divers and a fella named uh, J.R. McDowell, who, who's kind of a reflection of me, but a lot better and a lot smarter than I am. Um, they managed to capture a Soviet Alpha submarine and take it back to the East Coast underneath the Arctic ice pack, being harassed by Soviet submarines the whole way because they either want it back or want to sink it. Uh, and this is the first few paragraphs from that book. And the idea of sinking a submarine is interesting to me. <laughs> yes, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Uh, this takes place in Kate Perry's cottage, Kodiak, Alaska. Okay. I opened my eyes just enough to see Kate's golden hair spread across the pillow, her head resting on my chest, a sweet, contented smile on her lips. I felt overwhelmed by her presence. My heartbeat quickened. This cannot be happening, I told myself. Kate brushed her left arm across my stomach and pulled herself closer to my body. But it is. The phone rang. I started at the sound, but Kate just snuggled closer and moaned softly. I picked up the princess handset and brought it to my right ear, wincing a bit at the pain in my left shoulder. That was a wound I had received from a Soviet dart underwater off Point Barrow shortly after we transited to Kodiak, and I still had my left arm in a sling. The bedroom window across the room was dark, but this was Kodiak in the winter. It would remain dark for several hours still. Outside was bitter cold. Even the room air was more than chilly. Yeah, it's Mac. Mac, it's Jack Petrikov. Jack Petrikov his Russian accent heavy. Wake up, buddy. Kate stirred and sat up, rubbing her eyes, the sheet slipping from her pert nipples. Wah! She started to ask, but I put a finger to her lips and shook my head. No time to explain, Mac. You and Kate get out of there right now. I mean, right now. Jack? Right now, buddy. How's going to blow? You and Kate going to die. That got my attention. Kate looked at me through sleepy eyes, her tongue moistening her lips. She reached under the covers, a coy smile creeping over her face. Mac, you hear me right now. I grabbed Kate's wrist, interrupting her ministrations. Kate, we got a problem. Don't know what it is, but Jack says we need to get out of here right now. Kate looked at me in shock. He means it. Says we're in mortal danger. Kate pulled the sheet up around her chin, her eyes like saucers. I grabbed her arms and pulled her to her feet. Get dressed warm, girl, now, I said sharply. We're leaving ASAP. We'll be out of here in a minute, Jack. We'll take Kate's Dotson. Shit, where do we go? Don't take her car. It's going to blow, too. I heard some yelling from his hand, and then, Jesus, fuck, apparently not directed at me. One of my guys will meet you out back at Poplar. he take you to my boat. Grab what you can to stay warm. I heard a shot. Go, 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 Jack yelled, and the phone connection went dead. Oh, my. So I'm, I'm getting um, echoes of some of the scenes from Slingshot because Slingshot has, you have intrigue, you have, you have danger, you have sabotage, you have science, you have leadership examples, you have redemption, and of course, love and perhaps lust. Um, do all your books have these elements? Yes. <laughs> all right. My so, books are about human beings. Yes, and so readers should know and what to sometimes explain. aliens, and it turns out aliens are just human beings with a different wrapping. All right, I like that. Are we going to experience aliens 
in our lifetime? Will, will we meet someone from? I think there's a else? good possibility. Uh, it an awful lot depends on what's happening in a research lab run by Dr. Sonny White. Um, he used to work with NASA, and several months ago, he produced the very first micro warp bubble for real. Micro warp uh, the, bubble. The basis for the Alcubierre space warp drive. And he is spending a lot of time and a lot of money in scaling this up to the point where it can be wrapped around a ship and it can get from here to there really fast. Whoa. Or, or will we discover in the depths of our oceans that have not yet been explored enough something, some alien things that might give us answers to our I am sure that we will discover things in the oceans. And if you look over my right shoulder, you'll see one big fella that's probably the smartest thing in the ocean. That's an orca. He plays a prominent role in the second, third, and fourth uh, uh, Mac McDowell missions. Um, his name is Borisko, so named by a Ukrainian diver that was who was captured by my guys in the first book. Um, and he, he, he kind of adopts the ship and the divers, although they adopt him as an escort and he adopts them as pals and saves their lives a couple of times. Uh, but as far as an intelligence beyond ours in the ocean, I don't think so. And the reason I don't is these. Opposable thumbs and the ability to build things is, is lacking. Even octopus, uh, despite their intelligence and their capabilities, don't have the kind of maneuverability and the manipulating capability that we have with our hands. And I think that plays a major role. Octopus versus orca. Who's smarter? Oh, orca. Way more. Yeah? Yeah. How do we know? How do you know? I've been with both octopus and orca in the water on a personal basis. And my personal assessment is that orcas are, are, are smarter than octopus the way humans are smarter than dogs. Wow. I am so jealous of you and your experiences. Well, all right. You know, how you, you, be able, you, know, you know how you make friends with an orca? How? When he comes up to you and he nudges you, you know, his mouth, they, they weigh six tons. He's 30 feet long, but his mouth is six feet long. He'll open his mouth and he'll stick out his tongue. And what you got to do is take your hand and scratch the surface of his tongue. Oh, when my. When you do that, you become his buddy. Oh, my. <laughs> Now, At first you have if to... you if you lay your hand and arm flat on his tongue for about 30 seconds, you bond with him. And it's a lifetime bond. I have I had no idea. No no KFC involved in with orcas. <laughs> wow. So first of all, you have to be brave enough, uh, foolish enough to stick your hand in an orca's mouth. How do you know you could trust them? How, how do you do that first thing? All In all of human history, as far back as we have written records and as far back as we have oral history, there's not one incident of an orca harming a human 
with the exception of a couple of accidents that occurred to orcas in captivity. And that was not purposeful. That was an accident. Uh, but in, in the real world, orcas save humans. They protect humans. They're just amazing. I wonder why they do it. What do they get for it? What, what, do you, what, what is your reaction if you see a puppy uh, that, that's been injured and lying in the street? Do you, you just walk know. by or do you go pick him up and cuddle him and fix him if you can? Yeah. Yeah. So orcas have human empathy? I think so. Wow. Did you know that they eat 600 pounds a day? Of, is it krill or what, what do they eat? Well, they like shrimp a lot, but they'll eat anything. Orcas are at the top of the food chain. Orcas will eat whale. They'll eat shark. They'll eat everything except humans except humans that's good to know robert why do you write <laughs> i have a story to tell and people like my stories all right from your earliest book you've done you've done uh you did a book called starman jones for youngsters T talk about that a little bit that was 2016 i think it's actually called a relativity birthday present it is part of the starman jones series of which there is only one book right now uh i belong to the adventurers club in los angeles and dr frank drake is a member of that club although he rarely attends i got to meet him and we became friends uh, just in case your your listeners don't know dr drake is the seti guy He's the guy who came up with the uh, equation that um, that gives some idea of whether or not there is intelligent life in the universe. Uh, he's a famous scientist. And I showed him uh, a rough draft printout of a relativity birthday present, which I was calling a relative birthday present. <laughs> he went over it and he agreed to write a a uh, forward for parents and a forward for children. And he suggested, why don't you change it to a relativity birthday present? In a nutshell, a Starman Jones and Space Pup, uh, they like to go out on adventures in space. And uh, baby Billy is born and, and baby Billy's really cute, but he's too young to go with him. And so uh, Starman Jones decides to take Space Pup and they're gonna go to the star Sirius very, very quickly. Uh, as close to the speed of light as they can, and then come back. And this will give baby Billy a time to grow up. And they return on baby Billy's ninth birthday. Okay. And they are his relativity birthday present. In a nutshell, that's the story. Of course, it goes into more detail and pictures, and it's a lot of fun. But and then, I used and then, to tell my son this story when he was a when he was a, a youngster. That's awesome. And so slingshot is your first in your novel series that you published no the first one of your was early ones operation ivy bells oh all right and when that was published when oh goodness let me think sometime before this so yeah sometime let me, before that so let me just ask you this from that to your latest publication and i just saw on amazon a book came out in sep this September of this year, Sub, and, and you're going to have to tell me how to pronounce it. Is it Submariner? Submariner. As Submariner. Opposed, as opposed to Submariner. 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 People so, see the word, 
submariner and they pronounce it submariner and that's not right. A submariner is a is a low species of mariner. A submariner is someone who rides submarines. Good to know. I I hope I never have to make that mistake in front of either of the individuals who are a submariner or Except a submariner. They're a submariner and you can't change them. Okay. Actually well, though in all fairness this uh, I I have a friend that I served with on the USS von Steuben many years ago. And I'm on his mailing list, and he started mailing out stories about his time in the Navy. Okay. Uh, he's a storyteller. Just He's the kind of guy, it's like when you're sitting in a bar and there's this guy telling stories and you just can't stop listening. That's the kind of storyteller he is. And so I, I wrote him and I said, Jerry, you got a book here. He says, no way. I, there's not enough. I says, look, send me all your stories. I'll work them over. I'll set them up. We'll get some pictures. We'll put the whole thing together. And well, he agreed. And we ended up with a hundred thousand word book. Whoa. And it is an absolute bestseller. It is selling like gangbusters everywhere. Nonfiction or fiction? Fiction based on nonfiction. Nonfiction. All right. He says in his, in his forward, he says, every word in this book is true, except the things I made up. Okay. That's wonderful. I will he will he be in Georgetown this year with you? No, he won't, unfortunately. Uh, Jerry, right. I don't want to give away anything from the book other than that it's a great book, a fascinating read. But he had a terrible accident right after he got out of the Navy and was seriously injured. And he has taken years to recover. And he doesn't travel any more than he has to. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Well, how has your writing changed from your your early writing? And I'm I'm assuming that I'm assuming that maybe it has a little bit. It has to, right? Doesn't our writing have to change? I, I think it changes, sure. Um I I went back and edited uh, Operation Ivy Bells and I made some changes. Uh, but for the most part, my point of view was solid where it should be. It was clear, clearly indicated, which is one of the big mistakes that origin that the new newbie writers make. Um, and then I went back and re-edited all three of my Star Child trilogy novels. And again, I made some minor changes. Nothing, nothing big. Uh, I find perhaps more than anything else that my imagination has expanded beyond where it was. Uh, when I was going through um, the audio for the Ort Federation, so uh, my 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 voice actor has recorded it, and I'm reviewing it with the book in front of me to make certain that, that everything is correct, and he's putting in appropriate voices and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, I wrote this? <laughs> really? <laughs> that was a lovely surprise, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, very much so. And then well, what was, we did with my publisher, we put sound effects into the book and wow. And is that available on Audible now? It certainly is. Awesome. All of my books are available on Audible except Submariner. And maybe it will be at some point. Uh, the uh, Operation Ivy Bells does not have sound effects, but all the others do. So why haven't you narrated your own books? You have a great voice. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I don't think I'm as good as somebody who earns his living at doing it. Uh, uh, Trenton Bennett, who is my narrator, for instance, when he did uh, Sergei in, in Operation Ivy Bells, the Ukrainian, he developed an accent for him that is marvelous. Ah. Uh, when 
in the, in the uh, latest book, Operation Whiteout, uh, I have Taiwanese, Red Chinese, Russians, Ukrainians, uh, British, Falkland Islanders, and he keeps the accent straight. He keeps the voices straight. It's just amazing. That would be that would be tough. That would be a, a a lot of learning on your part, and and you're still writing. So and it's a it's a time commitment. So I understand that. Uh, what have you learned in all of your adventures and life that has surprised you? Other than marriage and how awesome it is to have a wonderful woman in your life. Oh, that I I, I can't emphasize that enough. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond that, uh, that's an excellent question. The the big thing that I've learned, I think, is that human beings are awesome. Uh, we as a species have capabilities that we don't really grasp. We ourselves don't really grasp. And these abilities, these capabilities come out when they're called for. And in my stories, I develop situations and I work up to them where these capabilities become important and my characters rise to the occasion and deal with it, usually. That answers the question about how your life experiences have informed your writing, right? I mean, <laughs> the, that, old, that old nugget that we write what we know isn't always true, right? No, not at all. I've never been to the art cloud. And so incidentally, when I when I was at the South Pole, I took some scientific papers with me to study while I was down there. One of them was written by Keith Lofstrom. You look in the front of the book you have in your lap and you'll see his name there. Mm -hmm. And when I came back out of the pole a year later, I looked him up and we met, became friends. And uh, we we talked about the idea of a space launch loop. And we spent some days together. We worked out. He's a he's a scientist, engineer, and and I'm an engineer. And we worked out some of the engineering uh, implications of this, and and developed the concept, and laid out sort of a generalized plot. He wasn't that good at that, but he was very good at engineering. And then uh, the book was launched at the International Space Elevator Conference in Seattle, which is cool. Wow! So every space elevator scientist on Earth that was at the conference has a copy of slingshot on his or her desk. Um, yeah, that's, that's now, cool. Now I do too. You mentioned that your imagination uh, is improving, growing, getting better uh, over the years. How, why? I think so. Why do you think, and do you think that you were born with this ability to have a wild imagination? Because you know, I've been asked at times, where do you come up with the things you write Laurel and how do you explain that? Not everyone let me give you has... Let me give you a perfect example. Several, maybe three months ago now, four months ago, um, I was reading some, some scientific announcements. And it turned out that, you know, you know what the cosmic microwave background is that was discovered. Nobel Prize was awarded for that long ago. And I'll pretend I do. Spot. Yeah, there's there's a cold spot in this cosmic microwave uh, background that nobody could explain. It was discovered. It was confirmed by the by the Galileo uh, X-ray telescope, uh, and 
I started thinking about that and I started reading a little bit more about it. And it turns out that there's a number of other scientists who've been looking at it who are way more capable than I am in this field. And it, it was finally determined that this cold spot is most likely an intersection of two parallel universes. Now, this is not science fiction. This is real astrophysics. And then beyond that, another team determined that the way this intersection works, now, I, I need to interrupt myself for a second. Do you know what entangled particles are? I've heard the expression. I'm well, not a scientist. It I turns out that at the at the submicroscope level, at the atomic level, there are certain particles that uh, become entangled in such a way that you can separate them by great distances, and they still know what they're doing, and the transmission is instantaneous, not limited by light speed. And these this group of scientists determined that the cold spot has been created because entangled particles in both universes, these are not galaxies, these are universes, are interacting. And I'm reading that and I'm saying, oh, whoa, wouldn't that make a story? And so my guys in the third Oort Chronicle are going there. That's fabulous. <laughs> I can't, I can't wait. That's, that's going to be amazing it's it's so exciting to think of how much we don't know if that makes sense yeah yeah no there in the in the, uh carlsbad caverns one time i'm among other things i'm a cave explorer and uh, in carlsbad caverns uh a group of tourists was being led through and at one point a little old lady said to the guide they have walkways and elevate it's it's all safe and commercial she says to the guide young man how much of this cave is unexplored? And I don't know, lady. We haven't been there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I love it. Well, are you doing National Novel Writing Month? Are you doing the NMRIMO? No, I am not. No? Yeah. Have you ever? I I started one at the urging of my friend Alistair Mayer, who's also a uh, hard science fiction writer, and my wife's ex. Um, <laughs> and uh, he liked it. And he said, you got to try it, Robert. And so I did. And I found the uh, external control unsettling. Okay. All right. I like it. I like, sh I like short suspenses on doing things. So if I know that I can't watch a show tonight after dinner until I write my 1,667 words, then I'll get it done. <laughs> 1,667, not 68. A day 67, six, six, 1,666 point... I don't know, nine, 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 you know, can't you divide 50,000 by 30 days in your head right now to, <laughs> up to a certain decimal point? I'm not going to ask you because you could probably do it. Well, do you have advice, writing tips, writing advice to our storytellers out there, people who maybe have stories they want to share, but haven't done it yet? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I've got I've got 19 books at this point, so mm -hmm. I've been through the process a few times. Yeah. Uh, you don't quit. There is no such thing as writer's block. That's just you kidding yourself. I agree. If, you, if you're gonna if you're writing and you feel what some people call writer's block, you just sit down and write anyway. Yes. Overcome it, and you just keep going. You don't quit. Right. 
And uh, don't worry about criticism. Don't don't worry about uh, bad reviews. But listen to people who are good writers because they can probably help you out. And one final thing, point of view, point of view, point of view. Never, never do head hopping. Don't don't in one page or one paragraph be in three people's heads. The world doesn't work that way. And you confuse the reader and they'll put the book away and read someone else's writing. Right. And that's one of the tough things to do, you know, when you're writing, because it's easy to just be in everyone's head and, you know, writing from a third person omniscient view can be done, but you've really got to know your stuff in order to do that well. So, yeah, um, Robert, well, I will see you in Georgetown this year. Absolutely. Both weekends? Both weekends. Well, I'm going to have to start working on my push-ups, aren't I? <laughs> that was funny, wasn't it? It seems to me you won the push-up contest last year. You uh, need to tell the listeners what you're talking about. Well, uh, who started it? Who started doing the push-up thing? Todd, Todd Fanestock. He, some, we have been talking at breakfast Todd's a, a, a black belt karate instructor, just in, in superb physical condition. Good looking guy. And an uh, awesome author as well. And, and, and an awesome fantasy author. You know, we, we write in different worlds. But somehow uh, something put a bug in his head. And when we came into the room, he dropped down to the floor and did 30 or 40 push-ups. And he's about 20, 25 years younger than me. Maybe more. I don't know for sure. And so I thought about it and I, I, I don't like to put somebody down, but it, I couldn't resist. So I took off my jacket and dropped down on my fingertips and did 25 push-ups. Yeah. <laughs> I did a few along with you, but I didn't do as many as either of you. So yeah, I got to I got to get back on that. We old, we old military people <laughs> have to have to show those civilians a little something. Um where can people find your work? Obviously on Amazon. Where else my, would my web my book website is robertwilliscroft.com. Mm -hmm. That will take you to the homepage. You'll see a little flash up that that urges you to get on my mailing list. You don't have to, but it would be nice if you did. And you get a free ebook if you do. It would be very nice. And Robert, I just want to thank you for sharing. And I know you have so many more stories, which is why I'm really looking forward to Georgetown Christmas Market again this year. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Georgetown, Colorado, by the way, uh, about an hour from Denver. It's the first two weekends in December, and there will be many, many local Colorado authors there with their books. I'll be there. We have our tables. We typically will autograph our books for free when you buy them. <laughs> of course. And you get to talk to us and ask questions about being authors and maybe challenge us to a push-up contest and take <laughs> pictures with us. And it's a really wonderful time. And books make amazing gifts for Christmas or for yourself or for whomever. So buy, buy Robert's books. He has so many. You have so many different uh, types of series. Um, you've got the one for the for the Kitty Winks, and so I again I want to thank you for being here, sharing your stories. I'm looking forward to more, and I hope we get to be table neighbors in another what few weeks in a month. Yeah, I'll, in a I'll month. send Jerry an email and tell him that we got to be side by side. <laughs> All right. Um, are you are you going to have costumes on? You know I'll have costumes on. 
No, I won't be wearing costumes. I'll just be wearing my leather jacket. And I was going to wear the hat I normally wear. But when I put it on, my background made the rim of the hat disappear. And it really looked dumb. So I took it off. Good. I like your backdrop. That is fabulous and exciting, um, as is your work. And Robert, take good care of yourself this next month. And I'll see you soon. Very good. It's been my pleasure to appear on your podcast. All righty. And listeners out there, you can see some photos and there will be show notes with links about this conversation that I've had with Robert today. And uh, so check it out at leadbillarl.com, my blog, sign up for my newsletter too, and I'll have links to Robert's newsletter. And yes, thank you for supporting us. Thank you for listening to us and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com. <laughs>